All right. Well, we're going to talk about work today. So buckle up, people, because if you hate your job, I'm going to help you. Uh, it's going to be great. Uh, what I'm not going to do is tell you that you need to quit. It's not what we're about. I'm, we're not going to make any like outrageous statements about the fact that uh, well, you just you'll be able to do the math. Uh, but Pierre and Marlies were actually supposed to be here today. They were going to be here. Their flight got canceled because that's what happens now when you fly is that your flights get canceled. So they're currently driving home. So as they will be here with us next week. Um, but they're driving back from Boston. So there's that. I was in Texas at a thing with Jason Giannotti, actually, who we just talked. Jason Giannotti used to work here. If you're new here, he was, he's a great guy. I was going to say he was a great guy, but he still continues to be a great guy. Um, so I was with him, and Texas got cold. It got, like, below 40 degrees, and they literally canceled everything. Like, businesses were closing. It was absolutely insane. Um, but anyway, so that's that. But work, this is going to be great. Now, uh, you, if I ask you, like, what's the worst job you've ever had, uh, some of you are probably, like, the one I'm currently in is the worst job I've literally ever had. Like, I, like you wake up, and you know that feeling when you have, like, a horrible job, like, when you just, you just hate it. Because uh, your feet hit the floor in the morning, and you're just like, I cannot believe I am doing this again. Like, I literally can't believe that this is what I've done to my life. Uh, the worst is when it's, like, the career you've decided to choose. Like, that's when it's, like, it can get really tricky. Um, but I remember, I mean, I, when I was a kid, I had a paper route that we literally, we lost money on this thing. Literally, we lost money. Like, they... It was in a uh, it was a home for elderly people, and they just did not pay for their papers. It was just a thing that they did, and we just kept delivering them. It was like this is awesome, and then the paper company was like, "You guys owe money." <laughs> it was bad. Uh, I worked at I've worked at two other places where I was just like it was grueling. I remember I had a job where every single day uh, I called my dad every day of work. I would call him midday. I'd be like, I cannot believe that they're doing this. After work, I'd call him and be like, I'm going to get out of here. Or I'm going to burn this place to the ground. And later, it was, it was horrible. Um, and I'm growing, so I don't do that anymore. It's not my current job. currently love my job, just so you know. So this is not some, like, I'm not, this is not coded language to be like, I'm going to burn this place to the ground. No, no, no. Love my job. But here's the deal. Uh, the past year has been pretty interesting, okay, if, you, if you've been alive. Like, you know that the, like, 2020 was wild okay and when it comes to work it actually was crazy do you know uh that uh in 2021 68 they did a study 68 percent of millennials and 81 percent of gen z which you don't know them they're younger than millennials they left jobs they left roles citing mental health reasons 68 percent and 81 percent 76 percent of all the people in the study said that they uh had at least one symptom of mental health condition in the past year, which you might think, well, yeah, one condition. But in 2019, it was only 59%. It's like a 20% increase in mental health problems as it relates to work. Now, Indeed is another company. They did a study about burnout. And if you don't know what burnout is, it basically means that there's a loss of sense of accomplishment uh, uh, or your identity. It results in exhaustion, lack of motivation. Uh, you might be here today and you're experiencing burnout or someone in your family is. Uh, in this study, they say 52% responded they were experiencing burnout at work. This was just last year. This isn't like a study from 2013. This is 2021, okay? 52%. Now, millennials, which is my age bracket, uh, we love to be burned out. So 59% of us are like, yeah, this is like horrible. Like, I'm exhausted. I lack motivation. 
Uh, Gen Z is very close behind at 58%. Now, this is two times where I've talked bad about young people, which I am one of them, but I just want you to know that Gen Xers, 54% of you apparently are burned out, and Baby Boomers is not lost on you either. 31% just last year uh, said that you were burned out. Now, this is interesting because uh, we just got, I just want to clear up a couple things first because uh, I'm not going to talk bad about age groups, okay, because we've all got our stuff, okay? Now, there's some stereotypes, like the young people in the room, you just want to quit your job and become an influencer. Like, I get it. Like, more power to you. TikTok is a phenomenal tool if you can hit it right, you know? Like, who doesn't want to be TikTok famous? Um, millennials, like, you actually don't have to work 70 hours a week to get ahead. Like, that doesn't have to be your reality. Uh, the people who are older than me, it's like uh, Luke's age. I asked last, I asked, <laughs> I can't help it. Uh, it's like, it's like we get it. You guys made the computer, all right? You made it, all right? We love it. Thank you. Like, we understand, okay? So just hold on. It's good. And then, uh, like, the baby boomers in the room, like, I know it's so easy to get so angry at the young people for not wanting to work hard, for all this other stuff. But, like, the reality is, Jim basically said it, we're just following your lead, okay? So just hold on, because it's going to get better, but it just is what it is. So in my opinion, all these things, uh, let's take it a step further. If you currently work 40 hours a week, if you have a full-time job, great job, like you've done it. 25% of your life right now is going towards work, okay? If you were to Judge the hours of the year versus the hours you spend in an office. A quarter of your life is sitting at your desk or in your office space. If you add sleep to it, if you just sleep seven hours a night, which isn't even really healthy from what they say. It's supposed to be like eight or nine. Who has time for that? But like if you're sleeping, just say seven hours. We're all unhealthy, okay? We're at seven hours, all right? And uh, you're seven hours. 52% of your life is either unconscious or in an office, okay? This is a problem, okay? If you hate your job, this is not good. 52% of your life you're either complaining about or you're not awake. That is, would just be a wild way to live, if you ask me. So I think you have to ask the question, was it always this way? Like, did God actually want us to hate our jobs? Was God's desire that 52% of our lives were spent either not like in our dreams or complaining. Is that what God desired? And I think the only way to really look at this idea of a manual labor and how God wanted us to view work is to actually go all the way back to the beginning. Because what I want to tell you today is that your work, your job, whatever your job is, you could be making caramel macchiatos at Starbucks, you could be doing spreadsheets all day, you could be answering phones in a call center, you can be stocking shelves at Target, you can be at Wegmans just living the dream, like I get it, we're jealous. Uh, you could be doing all of those things. Your work, no matter what it is, was meant to be a service to humanity and it is worship to God. You need to understand this, that whatever you put your hands to, was meant to be service to humanity or worship to God. And so we have to go all the way back to the beginning because actually God lays out what this was all supposed to look like. It's actually quite incredible. When we think about work in the context of creation, uh, it's actually quite, uh, quite interesting. I actually wrote a note on here that I can't even read my own writing, so that's super helpful, just so you know. Uh, but my first, the first point that I would have is that you need to understand, if we're going to talk about manual labor, you need to understand that your work is bigger 
than yourself. My work is bigger than myself. So let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Now, I don't know where you stand on creationism. That's fine. I'm just going to give you some theories, okay? You don't have to take them. You can just put them in your toolbox and take them out when you're in a conversation about it. You'll sound super smart, okay? But there's many theories around Genesis 1 and 2. Now, what's interesting about these two chapters is they both document the creation story, okay? The first chapter is super, like, it almost is, like, poetic. It's like, and in the beginning was, was God, and he created the heavens and the earth. And it was fo- voidless and formless and all these things. It's, like, beautiful, right? And then he goes through the days. On day one, there's this. On day two, there's this. On day three, there's this. Now, very interesting stuff happening here because what you don't see anywhere in this are things like dinosaurs or time frames or any of that. So everybody's trying to answer the dinosaur question, right? They're like, where are dinosaurs in the Bible? Well, here's a theory for you. Some people read Genesis 1 and 2. They call it the gap or reconstruction theory. This is the idea that the author just basically left stuff out. So we reconstruct it and fill in the gap with things that, honestly, the author was actually never intending to answer. But it's a theory. That's how people read Genesis 1 and 2. There's a gap theory. I don't like that one. Because for me, it's like, well, was he lazy? Or did he, uh, you know what I mean? Like, what are we doing with this? So gap theory. Write it down. You should know it. Uh, next one is the geological era theory. This is great. This is the idea that every day that the author writes about was actually an extended period of time. Now, some people say a 1,000 years because it sounds really good, especially when you're talking about the end times. You're like, oh. A thousand years. Every day was a thousand years. The earth is 7,000 years old. And then anybody who's like a scientist is like, yeah, but like there's fossils that are like a million years old. And you're like, no, they're not. And so it creates a really interesting conversation, okay? But the geological era theory is the idea that every day was an extended or nondescript length of time. Okay, great theory. You can have it if you want. The problem I have with that one is that it creates a discrepancy between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Because Genesis 2 is very, the time delineation is like pretty clear. So now that they contradict each other, did the author confuse himself? Like, how does this thing work? Uh, But geological era theory is pretty popular. The third one, and uh, if you've been in the church for a long time, you love this one, I know it. It's the literal seven-day theory. Uh, I'm not going to say, it's a theory. You can, if you, again, listen, you can buy into whatever one you want, okay? I'm just kind of throwing them out there. You can pick the one up that feels best. I'm going to talk about one, um, but the literal seven days. This is the idea uh, that uh, the day that God talks about in creation is an actual 24-hour period of time. So every day was 24 hours. And quite frankly, God can do whatever he wants. So if you want to do it in seven days, he's God. Do it in seven days. Now, the issue that scholars have with this idea is that now we're trying to answer questions that the author never intended to answer. His original intent was not to write a scientific uh, chapter when he was writing Genesis 1. He was giving us uh, the story of creation. He's not a scientist. He was an author of this letter to the Israelite people. So the danger with putting your own questions to find answers is now you're starting to ask an author questions that they never intended to answer. It'd be like asking your owner's manual, where do I find my hooded sweatshirt? Well, that would be a ridiculous question to bring to your owner's manual of your car, okay? Because they they wouldn't answer that question. It would tell you where the hood of your car is. And if you're like some people who read scripture, you'd say the hood of the car. Oh, my gosh, hood, hoodie, sweatshirt. I'm going to go look in the hood of my car for a sweatshirt. The whole thing just sounds insane, right? Uh, But if you wrote a letter to your mom and said, hey, mom, where did we put my winter clothes? Now you're asking an author, who you're asking someone who can actually give you an answer to the question you were looking for. It's very important to know that when you're reading scripture. So literal seven days, though, 
It's a theory. Here's what I want to talk to you about uh, this morning because it's going to help us. This is all going to help, I promise you, when we talk about work. You're like, where are we going? Uh, Hold on to your hats, people, because it's about to go down. Uh, The framework theory. I love this. Now, are there any scrapbookers in the house? Still, yeah. Everybody's like, I am, but please, for the love of God, just keep it chill, okay? Uh, now, I'm convinced that Mark Zuckerberg, his mom was a craft uh, scrapbooker. Like, he loved it. Now, if you don't know what scrapbooking is, essentially, it was like Pampered Chef. Remember Pampered Chef parties? Remember these things? Yeah, all the rage. Uh, you, uh, the, the jewelry ones as well. Moms would come over and, like, you'd, like, buy jewelry together. You'd do Pampered Chef parties together. Scrapbooking parties. These were great. This is Facebook before Facebook, okay? So essentially, all these moms would come together. Um, I say moms because this is my upbringing. My mom was a scrapbooker extraordinaire. We had all the tools, okay, to make scrapbooking amazing. And so they bring their little photo books over, all their photos from every era of life. They bring them in, and then everybody's got, like, this is, if you've never heard of this, I'm blowing your mind right now. But everybody, you get these fancy little scissors that create fun borders around printed photos. This is all before digital, people, okay? And so you have to cut the pictures yourself, and you put them in your book, and then there's captions. You write your own captions for every picture because you got to remember. And there's this whole thing. And I remember just being terrified as a child. Like, what is happening in our kitchen? Like, why are all these people here? And what are these weird books? And what you would notice about a scrapbook is most people would never, like, if you went to Disney World and you're putting your album together, you don't like start with pictures of when you woke up in the morning and you document your day that way. Like no one wants to read that. You want people to be gripped from the moment they open your scrapbook. You want that thing when they open it, you're like, oh man, I know exactly where we're going. This looks incredible. You want people to get the big picture of the photo album. Well, the framework theory is actually quite similar. Okay, what this says is that the author was trying to give us the big picture of creation. He wasn't necessarily interested in giving us a step-by-step guide on how how all this thing was put together in Genesis 1, but he was giving us a framework to get the big idea of the picture. Now, you might be asking yourself, okay, Jansen, well, what's the big idea? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, They're going to put a graphic on the screen. The graphic doesn't look great, but it is what it is, okay? I didn't make it, but whatever. Uh, Either did Christina. She made those, okay? So you can see the discrepancy. That is something I found. That is something that an artist makes, okay? So let that sink in. Okay, so here's what the framework theory says. The seven days uh, work like this. The idea is that the first day when the author was writing, the first day and the fourth day parallel each other, and they show, they show what governs over what, okay? So day and night is day one, and day four, he talks about the sun to govern the day, the moon to govern the night. That's huge. Okay, let me take it a step further. There's water uh, above and there's water below. It would take a whole class to explain what water above and water below means. I don't want to bore you with the details. Uh, and then uh, day five, it's the birds and the fish. So it's like they rule over those specific areas. Land, land and vegetation, then we get the first part of the sixth day, which is land animals. You see land animals, they're, they're cultivating the ground. And then the story climaxes uh, for the first time on the second half of the sixth day where basically uh, God creates uh, Adam and Eve. And this is what it says. God says this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Very repetitive, but let's keep going. Male and female, he created them. Uh, God blessed them, and this is what he says to Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth 
and subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, work. Fill the earth and work. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in verse 31, he says, God saw that what he had made, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God basically makes humans on the sixth day, and he says, you are going to rule over everything that just came before. You are going to manage that thing. You are going to work that thing. You, and this is, like, this is before anything goes wrong. This is like the perfect scenario. This is the ideal condition. God is literally telling humans, you are going to work. And then in Genesis 2, verse 1, which uh, the Bible in like the Middle Ages created verses and chapters so it would be easier to navigate. They didn't write in verses and chapters, so this was supposed to just continue. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. And then the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. He rested. And again, in the ancient Near East, uh, when people would have kind of been reading this and all this would have been going down, when a king uh, would rest, it was the picture of a king on his throne after he had just conquered something. The king would be sitting on his throne and resting. The idea is that everything that comes before day seven, humans are in charge of. But then on the seventh day, what God is basically saying, I am God and you are not. I am over all of this. But because he's such an interesting God and an interesting creator, he has decided he's going to let human beings manage this thing he created. He's Lord over all of it. He's managing it. And if you know the story, you know that the only rule that he gave, and it gets, it, we make it extremely childish. Don't eat the apple, right? There's, a, there's a, the, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat the apple. But think about it. What God is basically, the agreement that was established in the garden is you can do anything. You can, you, I want you to work this thing. I want you to grow this thing. I want you to build this garden. Uh, the only thing you can't do, I reserve the right, God is saying, to decide what is good and what is evil. As a human being, you actually cannot handle the job of, of uh, deciding what is evil and what is good. So as God, I reserve that right. So in this garden, every rock, tree, every fish, every stream had its perfect design and it fit into its perfect place. You need to think about this. The Garden of Eden, as God is creating it, was the perfection of balance and productivity. Like his plan, it was absolutely perfect. It was perfect. This is what Sandra Richter says. She's a scholar of the Old Testament. She's super smart, okay? Uh, she says this. She wrote a book called The Epic of Eden. Okay, it's a whole book about the Garden of Eden. Insane. You should read it. This is what she says. This was Adam and Eve's perfect world. Not just fruit and fig leaves, but entire race of people stretching their cognitive and creative powers to the limit to build work, uh, build a society of balance and justice and joy. Build their city in the shadow of the Almighty, create and design and expand within the protective confines of his kingdom. The blessing of this gift, a civilization without greed, malice, or envy. Progress without pollution, expansion without extinction. And then she goes on to say, here government would be wise and just and kind. Resources plentiful, war unnecessary, achievement unlimited, and beauty and balance everywhere. People, this was God's perfect plan. The people of God in the presence of God dwelling and working with him. Unbelievable. Like this plan actually was phenomenal. But then 
you have to think about where, where we are currently at. Do you feel any of that? I mean, <laughs> like when you work, you're actually engaging in God's original intent for humanity. It's just decently broken right now. Like when your feet hit the floor tomorrow morning, you're engaging in God's original intent for humanity. As you work, you are literally subduing the earth around you. This is exactly what God intended. Work was never meant to be isolated. It was never meant to uh, cause anger and frustration. No, work was always meant to be a service to humanity, not a means to an end. It was meant to be worship to God. So what if you viewed your work from the context of building the garden city? What if you viewed your work in the context that what I put my hands to is actually redeeming work? It's actually redeeming what God meant when he said you are going to subdue the land. So to recap, embracing Emmanuel labor, we're embracing the original intent of Eden, that my work is bigger than myself. The spreadsheet, it's not just a frustrating reality in your life. It's actually part of you subduing the earth. You're a stay-at-home mom. Your kids are not a curse. It's actually you servicing humanity, and it is worship to God. Uh, I love this. The second thing is that work is a blessing. It's not a curse. Okay, so uh, I know sometimes, again, we do dread it. Like, there's a book called The 4-Hour Work Week, and it's like one of the top-selling books on Amazon because obviously— I'll work for four hours and make a million bucks. Why not? And then you read and you're like, oh, so it's like actually not. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, give me the four-hour work week. I'm down. Um, but we don't live in that reality. Instead, if we're not careful, we'll just dread our way through our day. Uh, but the idea is that work is actually a blessing. And what you see in the creation story is that Adam and Eve, obviously, the way humans do, uh, they don't listen to the one idea. They decide, you know what, I'm actually the, the, I can be the arbiter of truth. I'll be the arbiter of good and evil. Give me the fruit, Eve. Let's do this thing. And they do it. And in that moment, what Adam and Eve basically did is they took that seventh day on that arrow we showed earlier, and they basically just removed it. They were like, you know what, God, you actually don't need to be sitting on that throne. We will be sovereign over this whole thing. We'll be at the apex of this creation story, and we want to be in charge of everything. But humans can't actually handle that type of pressure, and it literally turned the world upside down. And so this is what uh, it says in Genesis 16, because now, now something's got to happen. Humans have decided we do not need God, and so this is what God says. This is what he starts. He starts with Eve. He says to the woman, he says, I'll make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, again, when Eve was first created, her, whole, her role was to be the, like, basically the mother of all humanity. Now, think about this, because now she's a mother of humanity with no family dysfunction. It's a perfect environment, okay? And it was a, it was a relationship with her and, uh, and Adam that was perfect, it says, he goes on to say, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is not a removal of blessing. It's actually a reversal of blessing. When they decided that they wanted to be in charge, it reversed the blessing. And so in Adam, with Eve, where is it? Yeah, so with Eve, uh, let me just go down to it. I'm so ahead of myself. This is great, guys. Um, okay, uh, 
the scripture says that she would now experience pain in childbirth. So essentially the very thing that's supposed to bring forth life is now going to be the very thing that actually causes death. And before modern medicine, one of the leading causes of death in women was childbirth. Okay, and then it says that your, your desire is going to be for your husband and he will rule over you. God's original intent was that Adam and Eve were equals. They were different, but there were zero competition. They were in an ideal, perfect environment. Their partnership was perfect, but it turned dysfunctional the moment they decided to get rid of the seventh day and it turned into a competitive relationship. Now they're vying for control. They're fighting over what they view as transient resources. They're trying to get ahead. And the scariest thing is that Eve's longing for her husband, even today, will too often result in oppression and abuse. This is when that entered the picture. What should have been an example of self-sacrifice and joy, it turned into frustration and pain. And this is important because now we get to Adam. Now, Adam was intrinsically stronger. So the moment that they started, once competition entered, it was far too easy for the man to just rule over. It was never supposed to be that way. It was supposed to be a perfect partnership where they subdued the land together. And this is what God said to Adam. Because you listened and you ate the fruit you must, that you must not eat, them, eat from, cursed is the ground because of you. Not cursed is the work, but cursed is the ground because of you. And this is crazy. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles, and you will eat the plants of the field all the days of your life. Now, in order for this to really to feel this, you have to understand that before this moment, remember, this is a reversal of blessing. Before this moment, the, the garden was perfect. So the work that Adam put in, he was a farmer. The work that he put in, it was, he was working perfect soil. When he would plant the seed, it would respond exactly how you'd expect every single time. It wasn't toil. He didn't have to work hard. If you've ever tried to plant anything now, oh my goodness, I can't, I can't grow anything. But could you imagine a perfect work environment where every time you opened Excel, and you put a formula in, it worked every time. Like, could you imagine that? If you bake, and every single time you went and you started baking, it worked every time. Like, could you imagine, as a physical trainer, all of your clients, just they respond to your workouts every time. Like, a perfect work environment was all thrown away because Adam and Eve decided, you know what, we know best. You no longer need to be on the throne. We're actually going to take care of it from here. It was a reversal of the blessing. And now, toil all the days of your life. But the work wasn't cursed. Adam was actually created to love work. Adam was created to work and to prosper and to actually be extremely productive and love it. The, the reality is that today, you and I are still designed to work and produce. We are. We are designed to love the work. Unfortunately, we have to deal with this reality that sin is now in the picture. That seven-day uh, picture I showed you is basically in shambles, and there's only little pieces of perfection still left. Otherwise, you and I, we have to deal with the reality that sometimes there's going to be toil. 
Sometimes work is going to be a struggle because that is what entered the garden. And so when you think about your life today, your work is not a curse, okay? Unless you're doing something like illegal, in which case you should strongly consider a change. Um, But when you wake up tomorrow morning, uh, let me ask you the question, what if the work is actually the reward? What if the work that you do tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday night, what if the work is actually the reward? When is the last time you viewed your work as joy? Furthermore, when is the last time you viewed your work as worship? Because remember, it was always supposed to be a service to humanity and worship to God. And think about it, because what we'll do today is we will separate the sacred things from the secular things. We compartmentalize our whole lives so nicely. I've got my family time. I've got my work time. I've got my sleep time if I can get to it unless I'm too stressed out. Uh, and then I've got my church time. Now, church, is gonna, you get two hours of my life, okay? And then I'm going to maybe I'll stop and get the free coffee, chat with somebody. But once I'm out, we're back at it. I've got to get my mind ready for work tomorrow. And I'll think about you maybe Wednesday at 6 if I can get to prayer. Uh, and we, we've compartmentalized our lives so much. But in reality, if you were to ever ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, how is your, how is your spiritual life doing? He would look at you like he had three heads. There wasn't even a Hebrew word for spiritual. Like that, that was not a thing. When you look at the garden, the jobs that Adam and Eve were given to do, there was nothing that we would deem sacred about them. In order to understand a manual labor, you need to completely dismantle the sacred and secular divide. You need to understand that no matter what you put your hands to, it can be worship. If you are making a caramel macchiato, it can be worship. This is why it is so important that when you go through the drive-thru at uh, Starbucks, saying thank you goes such a long way because the person who's making your stuff is worshiping to God. And I would say even if they know it or not, it is worship. And this is also why the seventh day is so important because we would call this Sabbath. It is a day of rest. But in God's, like, another way to look at this is we take that seventh day. The original intent was basically to say, you know what, God, I'm going to work like this, but I'm going to follow your lead. I'm going to rest and focus on the only one who can actually hold all of this together. This is why that seventh day is so important. Okay, Anaj, you can come up now. Otherwise, we're just going to talk all day. It's going to be fun. Okay. All right. All right. Now, there's one part of Genesis 3 that I didn't read, and I think it's actually really interesting, because part of Emmanuel labor is that it's, it's honestly okay to still dream. God actually does want you to work extremely hard, and he actually wants you to wait patiently for what he's called you to do. Like, those are things that God wants you to do. Like, work hard. Paul even says, and uh, it's in 1 Corinthians, I think it's like 15, uh, 10. He says, by, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was out, not without effect. No, and he said, this is literally in the Bible. I worked harder than all of them. I worked harder than all of them. Now, when I read Paul here, I don't read a man who's complaining. I don't read a grumpy old man. I read a man who is actually honored with the fact that he worked extremely hard. Working hard is actually okay. In fact, I believe working hard, it honors God. But listen to what happened to Adam. In verse 19 of Genesis uh, Genesis 3, it says, By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. First of all, that last part, it's so interesting to me that Adam 
his blessing was that you're going to subdue, the, like you're going to cultivate the ground. The very ground that Adam was called to cultivate, he's now going to be fertilizer for when he dies. That is unbelievably horrific if you think about it. The very thing he was supposed to rule over is now the thing he's going to fertilize when he dies. And this is the curse that you and I are under. But take it as, we're going to go a step further. By the sweat of your face, you will eat. This was an ancient Near East like idiom, a, a saying that they would use. And what this talked about was anxiety and perspiration inducing fear. By extreme anxiety, you will eat your food. Before this moment, Adam and Eve never felt anxiety. In God's perfect original intent, we weren't supposed to be anxious. And you have to ask yourself, like, how much of my time do I spend filled with anxiety? Think about it. We are currently sitting in the richest planet or the richest country on the planet. For many of you in here, you're holding stable jobs. Like what some may say, like, I don't know how I'm going to put food on the table this week. For some of you in here, you know exactly how you're going to do it. You're going to go to a nice restaurant with your family and it's going to be awesome. Yet you still wake up on Monday morning worried. You still go to bed on Tuesday night stressed out about Wednesday. Isn't it amazing that in this moment in the garden, God said the reversal of the blessing of work is that from here on out, you are going to experience anxiety, perspiration-induced fear. And so you have to wonder, where do we go from here? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, right after Paul says he works really hard, he says this in verse 21 and 22. That's 1 Chronicles, which if you know your Bible, I'm way off, okay? I got to go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Chronicles, I got there and it was like, King Hezekiah. I was like, no, 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 no. It's not what they said at all. Okay, sweet. I'm even tapping. I'm not even turning. This is crazy. Okay, verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all be made alive. What's so insane and incredible about what God has done is God, and I didn't even read it, God actually says in chapter 3 that he is going to send someone to crush the head of the enemy. He was going to send someone to crush the head of anxiety. He was going to send someone to crush the head of toil and trying to figure this whole thing out and waking up on Monday morning stressed out about your week. Like he was going to send someone. And that man was Jesus. Some scholars call him the second Adam. Some call him the last Adam. God knew that through one man, sin entered the world. He needed one man to redeem the world. And so he sent Jesus. So you wonder, what did Adam lose in the garden? Adam lost his identity. Jesus reestablishes it. Adam lost his intimacy. Jesus reestablishes it. Adam lost his presence with God. When you look at Adam and Eve, it literally says they hid. They hid from him. He was walking through. Pastor Pierre talked about it a couple weeks ago. You should go listen to it. He was walking through the cool of the day and asking, where are you? And they hid themselves from the presence of God. Jesus reestablishes presence. And where Adam toiled in fruitless work, Jesus establishes joy in the midst of our work. So church, your work is more than just a job. No matter your context, you view it as a service 
to humanity and it is worship to God that somehow you can find worship in the things you're doing. The minimal tasks, the minuscule tasks, the odd jobs that you have to complete, that somehow you would find worship in that thing because in doing so, you're building the dream that God wanted from the very beginning. A world where creativity is cultivated, a world where productivity is actually worship to God. And at the end of it, may you say like Paul that I worked harder than all of them and loved it the whole time. May that be our reality today. Church, let's pray. God, we thank you that you are good. God, we thank you that when you started this whole globe spinning, you wanted men and women to cultivate and subdue the earth. So Jesus, right now where there is anxiety about tomorrow, I pray that you would become the Prince of Peace. God, in areas where we've been stressed out, we've been complaining about our job, God, I pray that you'd forgive us and remind us of what it means to worship you through our work. That God, through this series, you would redeem our view of work and we put it in the context of how you originally intended it. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.